Welcome to Ask an Austrian, episode 10. My name is Guido Hülsmann. I'm a professor of economics. I'm teaching at the University of Angers. That's in Western France. And uh, formerly, I've also been a, a resident fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. I'm still a, a fellow of the Institute. And uh, so I've been a long time associated with Austrian economics. Thanks for having me to the show. Um, Mr. Callum sent me uh, a list of questions and I think I will just go down the list, start at the, the top and, and see how far we, we can get. So the first question is, what is my take on the FT, uh, FTX fiasco? Well, actually I've not looked into this in, in, in much detail. I must say, I'm, I'm not surprised that there are problems of this sort. And as far as I understand the issue, and again, I've, I've not really looked into this uh, uh, very closely. As far as I can see, this is a typical problem of fractional reserve banking. Uh, in this case, applied to um, uh, a Bitcoin exchange. Right? The, the technique of fractional reserve banking that is issuing claims uh, on, uh, on a fractional reserve basis is not limited to, to money. Uh, as, as uh, it had been originally, right? So it can also be applied to financial titles. And that's the case today, right? All uh, financial exchanges, stock exchanges, bond exchanges, and so on, they are very largely based on a, on a fractional reserve basis, right? So the trading of, of the, uh, the financial titles themselves. And for those of you who want to know more about this, you should look up the word rehypothecation. Um, oh, you will find lots of articles uh, dealing with those topics. Not much uh, is critical. Uh, lots of it is very technical, but there are some uh, good comments on this. And you will see that rehypothecation of financial titles, that's repledging uh, financial titles uh, as uh, security for uh, credits and, and so on, is in fact a, a repeat operation of fractional reserve banking. So with FTX, uh, we, have, we have the same thing, right? So it's not very surprising. And it shows that, well, um, I mean, whatever you might think about Bitcoin um, and, and similar cryptocurrencies, right? They, I mean, even if Bitcoin per se was a wonderful uh, money, uh, so a base money, what economists would call a base money or money in, in the narrow sense, um, you, you could not avoid um, uh, that there be problems of, of the sort to the extent that people uh, are building fractional reserve operations on that basis. There's another question of the, of the same sort, which is uh, would fractional reserve banking exist in the free market? Uh, I, I think yes. I think as, as long as uh, the only thing that really prevents fractional reserve banking is that people refuse to deal with fractional reserve banks. Uh, so as long as people want to try it out, uh, it, it will happen. Uh, to some extent. And that's not a problem uh, because uh, as long as fractional reserve banks are not uh, bailed out uh, by taxpayer money or other forms of coercion, that's really, um, uh, it's really not much of an issue, right? As long as they are very upfront about this. Uh, the problem uh, uh, would emerge if there's a fraudulent presentation of things, right? That, that uh, a bank would 
um, present its own operation as being non-fractional reserve, so it's being full reserve, some money warehouse operation, whereas in, in fact they're operating on a fractional reserve basis. That would be fraudulent and would also be liable to uh, uh, civil pursuits in a libertarian society, even if there's no government around. Um, are there any Austro proto Austrians I recommend readings, uh, reading? Uh, so, so well, authors who have been uh, who have published before Karl Menger, the time of Karl Menger. Well, I definitely would recommend a lot uh, Frederic Bastiat. Uh, Bastiat is, is a French economist of, of the 19th century. He was born in 1801 and died in 1850. He was a brilliant writer and, and very much in tune with the Austrians. And what, what Bastiat was lacking was. Uh, the price theory that was developed by um, uh, uh, Karl Menger uh, and then Eugen von Berbarberg, and uh, also to some extent, of course, the monetary theory that came out of the pen of Ludwig von Mises and Mary Rothbard and others. Uh, but other than this, uh, Bastiat is really a wonderful author. In particular, what I love about Bastiat is his uh, very realistic take of, uh, on the state. And uh, so he once presented the, the state as the great fiction through which everybody tries to live at the expense of everybody else. That's a famous uh, uh, aphorism. And uh, he had uh, lots of other interesting uh, uh, things to say, uh, in, in, in which he presented in a very vivid style. Uh, apart from uh, Bastiat, I would also recommend Jean-Baptiste Say. It's, it's easy to find his, his textbook, Treatise on Political Economy, uh, online. Right, so there's this site archive.org, and you'll find uh, free online uh, versions of this book uh, for download. Uh, I also like Adam Smith, um, uh, despite all critical things that have been said about Smith from an Austrian point of uh, view. I like David Hume, especially his essays, uh, which were written in the 1750s. Um, yeah, so they're definitely proto-Austrians that I recommend reading. It was a similar question here somewhere. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, what's? Uh, I think the question was, what is my favorite non-Austrian or non-libertarian book? I don't see the question here. Well, in any case, my my favorite non-libertarian book is uh, well, it's always the next book that I read. I don't really have much of a of, of a favorite. I'm definitely I'm a big fan of of Mises, and of course, but I'm also a big fan of of Bastiat. Uh, but of course, uh, you have to read your your classics and the authors that you admire. You have to read reread them again from time to time. Um, but then, if you are curious, uh, you, you just will enjoy about reading any any book. That you hope will, will teach you something. So right now, for example, I'm, I'm reading a, a German uh, uh, legal scholar by the name of Karl Schmidt. Um, I've been reading him 20 years ago, also for some other context. And uh, through various uh, accidents, I came back to him. And uh, Schmidt is actually was I was a bit of a deception. I've forgotten how much of a historicist he was. So he's very much. Um, uh, his scholarship is based on on uh, analyzing in detail uh, questions of legal uh, development, legal doctrine, and, and so on. That's not necessarily interesting for somebody who is not not a, uh, a lawyer. But Schmidt was famous for uh, concepts like uh, uh, the uh, the distinction between uh, uh, friend and foe, right? Uh, 
uh, friend and, and, and enemy. Uh, and all the interesting things that he has come up with uh, are, in a way, are universals. Right? So they're all true at all times and all places. The trouble with Smith, uh, Smith is that he himself didn't believe really that there were any universals. <laughs> it's kind of contradictory. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting. I, I think it's, it's always worthwhile to, to read people with whom you do not necessarily agree if they're very intelligent. So you can learn a lot from them. Uh, you can also learn a lot from, from their arrows. Um, uh, there's a question from uh, uh, Lyme. What, what, what contributions, if any, do ancient philosophers provide for Austrian economics or libertarianism? Well, that's, that's kind of difficult to, uh, to say, right? because uh, uh, Austrian economics is a very specific doctrine, libertarianism as well. I would say, in, in general, it's always good to read widely. And this is something that Mises also uh, said uh, at various occasions. It's, it's uh, helpful to read widely, uh, even people who, especially people whom you uh, might not agree with, um, because it allows you to gain a wider perspective on the arguments that you hold to be uh, true and crucial. And uh, sometimes it's, um, uh, you, you don't know where this will be leading, right? Sometimes you, you, you read a book, uh, whatever, on, on, uh, on, on theology, uh, ontology or something like this, and you don't quite see the connection with Austrian economics and libertarianism. But if you let things sink in, at some point in the future, it might come back to you and say, yeah, yeah, there is a connection. And it actually is, might be something that is helping you to reinforce an argument that you had been considering uh, so far uh, in, in a different context. Right? So there's no specific ancient philosopher that I would re uh, recommend for Austrian economics, except, of course, my, my big favorites, the usual suspects are uh, Aristotle right? and, and Thomas Aquinas, whom I love a lot. And then there is uh, a German philosopher of the 20th century, um, uh, Josef Pieper, who is one of my favorites. And uh, Etienne Gilson is, is, is a French philosopher also of the 20th century uh, with um, uh, uh, written uh, great books on topics that are directly or indirectly relevant for, for Austrian economics. For example, I'm, uh, next year I'll publish with the Mises Institute a book on uh, uh, gratuitous goods. So all kinds of stuff that you do not pay for, uh, things that come for free, right? Free lunches, uh, in a way, so, which includes gifts uh, on the one hand, and then also lots of uh, scientific goods, right? Uh, positive externalities that result from market exchange and, and other uh, from other human choices. And uh, in preparing this book, I've, I've uh, relied a lot and I learned a lot actually by reading a people's book. Um, uh, know, what's the English title? The German title is uh, Muse und Kult. So it's uh, leisure and uh, culture, something like this. Uh, you'll, you'll find it also. Uh, online, I think. There should be a copy available. I got a copy online. Uh, so this was very helpful because he, he stressed the importance of leisure. Leisure is um, uh, human activity that is not geared uh, toward uh, distinct purpose to obtaining a certain result 
uh, to uh, earning revenue, uh, for example. So it's something, it's just dedicating yourself to uh, something else or to some other person. And uh, the consequence of leisure are all kinds of good things that follow from for you, both for yourself and for, for other people. So lots of unintentional gratuitous goods for others. Uh, next question would be, um, uh, when we talk about the effects of the dollar losing its purchasing power over time, especially since the creation of the Federal Reserve, how do we factor in the amazing innovations the market has provided since then? which mostly make our lives better. Money couldn't buy things like televisions, computers, Stratocaster guitars, I don't know what that is, uh, mobile phones and advanced healthcare back then. And most other products and services available back then are available with much better quality today. So what that, does it really mean to say the $1913 is worth less than the $2022? That's a very good question, right? So it's, it's indeed, it's, it's a big problem, uh, right? If, if the, the goods that you can exchange for money today are completely different than the goods that you could uh, exchange for money in 1930. Yeah, it, it is a big problem. And I don't really have, a, have an answer uh, for this. It's, it's easier to um, uh, make such comparisons uh, within a shorter time period uh, where the, the kind of goods that you would exchange on the market for money do not change that much, right? So that's what uh, statisticians had done in, uh, in, in previous years. Uh, so let's say roughly between the 1920s and, and 1980 or so. And then more recently uh, in the 1990s, uh, they, they've started um, uh, changing the, the, the standard of comparison, right? So the, the, the basket of goods in terms of which you would try to measure uh, the purchasing power of money. Uh, they, they change this every single year. So that, that's called the technique of the rolling base here. Now that's of course, that's uh, absurd, right? Because if you change it every single year, you're no longer comparing money to the same thing, right? So the whole exercise no longer really measuring something, right? It's like measuring uh, your children uh, with, with, with a, uh, an inch rod right and the the intro changes every year right so it, it has no no meaning so uh yeah it's very difficult to make such measurements right what you can do meaningfully is to um uh co make comparisons uh, of the purchasing power of of, of money within a 10 or 15 year uh, framework and then you can see well in every 10 or 15 years you change the basket against which you you compare the purchasing power of money and then what you see, what you could see typically throughout the 20th century is that uh, as compared to the successive baskets, money would always lose uh, its purchasing power, right? So the dollar would lose in the 1960s, it would lose in the 1970s and the 1980s. The dollar has been losing purchasing power almost all the time, right? Except for a few years in the interwar period. So um, uh, therefore you can conclude that since it, had, uh, it has lost purchasing power all the time, well, it, it, the purchasing power today is definitely lower than it would have been in 1913, but how much it's impossible to, to specify. Right? So that's that's the problem. So if you want to learn more about this, um, about these things, uh, uh, a young economist by the name of Carl Friedrich uh, Israel, 
uh, has published recently a, f a few uh, papers dealing with, 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 with this question and also uh, the issue of measuring inflation and so on. So you can look him up on the inter uh, 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 internet. Uh, Israel, right? No, not Israel Kirchner, but Israel is, fa is family name. So the, the first name is Karl Friedrich. It's very German. Okay, next question. Uh, can you talk about the so-called milkshake theory? Well, I've never heard about that, which I think tries to explain why the dollar is remaining strong against other world fiat currencies, despite what the Fed is doing. Does this also explain why Bitcoin, other crypto, and gold don't seem to be doing as well as one might think in a highly inflationary period? Well, again, so I'm sorry, I don't know what the milkshake theory is, but um, uh, well, the dollar has remained strong simply because the dollar is... Uh, on the world standard, it's the, it's the most widely used medium of exchange. Right? So the, the dollar on the world scale is probably the only international money right now, uh, apart from the, the natural monies, uh, gold and silver, right? which are also used uh, everywhere. Um, but so, so uh, dollars can be used in a very liquid, uh, they can be uh, exchanged, kinds, all kinds of goods that can be exchanged on uh, financial exchanges, stock exchanges, and so on, right? You, you, you cannot sell a, a bunch of uh, shares of a company uh, uh, in, ex in exchange for gold, right, or for silver. You would first have to buy dollars, and then you could buy uh, gold and silver. So the dollars are definitely uh, the most widely used medium of exchange, and that's beneficial for the dollar, especially each time there is a financial crisis or there is a military crisis or some other uh, some form of shakeup uh, on the international level. Right? So that's why the dollar has been faring well uh, recently, even though um, uh, the Fed has been pursuing a very expansionary policy. Right? There has been great uh, concerns that. Uh, the, the price inflation rate might be still be higher than it is today, and it's pretty high as compared to what we had during the past 40 years. But again, that, that's only one reason why you would like to own dollars, right? Uh, uh, to protect your, uh, to, to keep a, uh, a money that you would, um, that, that keeps it purchasing price, of course, one motivation. But it's uh, there, there are other motivations, right? Other, even if the dollar loses the purchasing power 10 percent, 15 percent on an annual basis, and probably even if, it, if it's a bit higher, it, it might still be useful to own dollars because it gives you access to all kinds of other goods. Of course, the higher is the price inflation rate, right? The more you lose while owning dollars, the worse it is, right? You, the greater are your incentives to look for something else. The trouble is, there is nothing else that's comparable right now. Uh, on an international scale, right? Forget about the euro, um, forget about the British pound, forget about uh, the yen uh, and, and uh, um, uh, Huan, uh, same thing, right? So there is nothing that comes close to the dollar. Uh, next question, in an anarcho-capitalist world, what would happen um, with nuclear weapons? Who would ensure that uranium doesn't fall in wrong hands? If anarcho-capitalism is to take over state, okay, how would the transformation take place? Well, uh, actually, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, the, the short answer is that there is uh, nothing that really ensures in the sense of guarantees that the uranium would not fall in wrong hands. And uh, all I can say is that 
that's not a deterioration as compared to the current situation. Because we, right now we have the same thing, right? Who, who prevents that uranium falls into the wrong hands? <laughs> and, the, and the answer is nothing. And uh, probably there's a lot of uranium already now in the wrong hands, right? So uh, you have a technology like this, uh, nuclear bombs and so on. Yeah, I mean, there is always the risk, there's always a possibility that some crazy people will use nuclear bombs. And, and uh, these people might very well in government. All we can say from a libertarian point of view is that the incentives to use nuclear bombs uh, are uh, greater when you have uh, when you're a government, right? Because uh, you can always, uh, especially if you're, if you're stronger than your uh, foreign enemies and so on, right? You can always claim uh, uh, innocence or uh, can justify yourself before. Uh, in, in front of uh, public opinion because you control the media, because you own uh, uh, international courts that, or you, you, you can avoid being uh, dragged to, uh, toward, uh, in, in front of an international court, right? There's this uh, international criminal court in The Hague in, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, at which uh, lots of heads of state have been uh, judged in the past, but these were always heads of state of, of small governments, right, of small states. Uh, that they could not uh, stand up to the big powers like the US in particular, but also Russia or China, uh, uh, France, Britain, right? None of these uh, uh, countries that are uh, in the Security Council of the United Nations have ever uh, been um, uh, accused or have ever been judged uh, in The Hague, right? So, and that would, would be different if you had a, a state free. Uh, situation because then um, the probability that uh, uh, criminals could just escape like this uh, uh, from uh, responsibility is less. It's not impossible, but it's, it's less. Anyways, that's what I think about this. Uh, the next question is, um, is libertarianism necessarily for open borders or freedom of movement? And uh, the answer is no, because libertarianism is all about private property rights, right? So the, the movement that takes place uh, must always take place under with the consent of the people who own uh, the, the streets, right? And if you want to go somewhere, well, you, they, they, there's always ground, right? So the ground is always owned by somebody. So you cannot go in a libertarian society, you cannot go anywhere without the permission of those people, right? And uh, uh, of course, uh, th there might be people who would, uh, who would be in the business of uh, getting people from place A to place B, right? transport business and uh, road owners might also happy to, to carry people on and so on, but typically they would not like them to stay eternally on their ground, right? They bring them from A to B, but then they want to get rid of them also, right? So unless those who want to move from one place to another will be welcome at the final destination, um, they, they could not go, right? Now, uh, in, uh, in any society, whether it's libertarian or not, there are always people are happy to uh, welcome uh, foreigners and so on, uh, and, and others who do not, right? So there would be some balance uh, somewhere. But it's, it's wrong to think that libertarianism is necessarily for open borders, right? Libertarianism is for voluntary interaction. So as long as all people agree those who move and those who receive them, uh, th that's fine. And if those who 
receive uh, the people who are moving uh, do not agree. That is, if they do not want to receive them, that's not good from a libertarian point of view. The next question is, can you explain Austrian capital theory? Wow. Okay, well, I'll skip that because it's a bit large. Right? I, I uh, uh, well, why, why don't you look at a good textbook? Uh, I, I, I would look at um, uh, Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy and State, read chapters uh, five and following, right? Five, six, seven, three chapters. That's probably the best presentation. Also, Mark Skousen has written a, a, a nice book, a textbook. Uh, uh, Roger Garrison is less of a textbook, but it's, it's, it's uh, usable. Uh, uh, time and money, right? So these are texts. I, I cannot present this in a few minutes. Uh, next question would be How did I feel studying mainstream economics while knowing about the Austrian school? Uh, actually, I uh, I did not study mainstream economics while knowing about the Austrian school. I first studied mainstream economics, and the reason why I got into economics is actually Keynesian economics because I like Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics is great because um, it uh, puts the the reader uh, into the position of a pseudo tyrant, right? So it, it explains you just what a benevolent dictator would have to do in order to create growth, reduce unemployment, um, uh, and, and, and so on, right? So make the world a better place. And that's what, what attracted me uh, at the time. Uh, so I first studied uh, well, Keynesian macroeconomics and all kinds of uh, other elements of standard economics. And then later on, came to know about the Austrian school. That was actually, I, I came to know the Austrian school shortly before I studied my doctoral studies. So in a way, it, it was beneficial right? that I, I, I did not have to torture myself learning the other stuff. But then I had still to torture myself a bit because uh, still later on, I, um, I had to prepare an entrance exam to become a professor at a French state university. That, that's how they organize it here. So I had, again, to show that I have a solid command of, of mainstream economics. So it was a little less fun uh, re relearning it at, at the time, but I did, right? So um, how did I feel about it? I was not particularly happy, but again, I, I think you can always learn from reading even things that you do not necessarily agree with right away, because most people, uh, most authors have something to say that is valid uh, and which can enrich your own your own thought, right? Um, uh, so it's uh, uh, it's always a good thing to, to to have a look beyond the borders of things that you currently think are relevant. Okay, what did, uh, the next one? What were Mises's critiques of polylogism? Well, polylogism is the, the uh, Marxian, uh, is Marxist doctrine that um, you uh, uh, th th there's a strict separation between uh, the logic of a bourgeois person and the logic of a uh, proletarian. Uh, so, whatever criticism a bourgeois economist might make of Marxist plans are ultimately irrelevant. Right? So you can come up with clever, uh, clever critique and so on, but it, it doesn't count, so to say, because that's just bourgeois logic and it's irrelevant for the world of proletarians who are instructed by, by Marxist thought. Right? So that's, that, that's the argument. 
And uh, of course, that kind of argument is, is very, um, uh, had, had a long history. It's been developing since the 19th century into our present day. And it, it always pops up in, in various ways, right? So I mean, you find today feminists who are uh, making claims of the same sort, right? They're saying, well, well whatever might be sa said about uh, feminism and so on, uh, uh, all the critical points that might be brought up are irrelevant because women think completely different than men, right? Uh, or uh, black people think completely different than, uh, than white people, right? Or in the 1930s, you had guys in Germany running around and said, well, we have German logic, we have German uh, mathematics and uh, Aryan uh, physics and, and stuff like this, right? So the, the, the argument is the same. What's the trouble with this argument? And Mises well pointed out that um, uh, I think that's, that, that's uh, already this consideration alone completely explodes it. it it's self-contradictory, right? It's um, uh, if you are responding uh, with this argument to somebody else, well, you, uh, so as you respond to a criticism, well, then you already accept that that person would, would understand your rejoinder, right? And so that, that, that you make this this point that he would be able to understand this. And, and that's in fact, that's the uh, precondition of any meaningful uh, discussion at all, right? That you presuppose uh, that the other person to whom you're addressing yourself, with whom you're just having a discussion or, or a disagreement does have the same uh, uh, mind as you, right? So the logic is not really different. And if you do not believe that that is true, then it makes no sense talking uh, to that person at all. And so therefore the, the coherent Marxists uh, and uh, well, uh, similar people today, actually they do not spend much time talking to other people. They just want to manipulate them or they, they want to uh, uh, subdue them, right? They want to prevent that they have any influence on uh, public matters, public affairs, uh, so there's, uh, in their eyes, there's no uh, a point in uh, coming to an agreement discussing anything at all because there's no possibility for an understanding. That's at least coherent, right? But it's still uh, uh, it's still uh, uh, contradictory, right? Because uh, uh, I, the, the, if if you if you make this kind of claim, right, then why why uh, should there be a different logic only between white and black, Aryans, non-Aryans? Uh, bourgeois, proletarians, and so on. Why not also different logics between different subgroups of proletarians and so on? How do you know, in fact, what uh, is the logical structure of uh, the mindset of this and that person? Um, the next question is, what, what is methodological individualism? Um, well, it is the um, uh, methodological uh, individualism argues that the only way to understand um, uh, social phenomena so that result from the interaction of lots of different people is to start understanding individual actions, right? individual human behavior. So you always have to reconstruct what happens globally uh, by uh, first anal analyzing individual actions and then see how individual actions, whether they are coordinated or not, uh, produce the overall result, right? Because ultimately, all things that take place in society and politics and so on, all things that somehow result from human action always result from individual human action, right? Uh, the expression itself uh, comes from uh, uh, Joseph uh, Schumpeter, 
And so he used it, I think, the first time in the early uh, to 1900s or 1906 or something. He definitely used it uh, in his, in his uh, 1908 book, uh, of which I will not give you the title because it's in German. Okay, uh, the next question is, what is your favorite thing that you've learned from reading and writing about Mises? Are there any favorite stories or facts about Mises himself that you've also learned? Poor favorite thing. That, that's always difficult. I've always difficult to say what is my favorite thing because I love, love a lot of things. Um, uh, well, definitely, I, I like Mises books, right? I mean, that's also, I'm, I'm an economist, right? I, I, what I learned about his life and his professional activities and so on, I found this very interesting, but it's certainly not what I love most about him, right? Well, it's not what is my favorite thing about him. My favorite thing about him is really is his books. He's a, a genius. He's one of the uh, greatest intellectuals uh, in, in the history of uh, of the of the West, and um, probably the greatest economist uh, ever. Right? So that that's my impression. And uh, the way to appreciate this by reading his books, uh, in particular four uh, great books that I recommend that every, anybody who's interested in Mises should uh, acquaint himself with. This is the theory of money and credit. Uh, socialism, human action, and theory and history. And actually, uh, I, I think there's also a fifth book that I would recommend very much, especially if you have a little philosophical band, uh, you should read its very last book uh, with the title Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science, uh, published in 1962. It's a, it's a fairly sh uh, short book, probably one of his shortest books. Um, and uh, it's, it's just wonderful. What is the time preference theory of interest? Uh, the, uh, in fact, there, there are two versions of the time preference uh, theory of interest, at least two versions, right? So one comes from Bambarek, and uh, uh, Bambarek says, well, it's <clears throat> the theory according uh, to which people, uh, all, all, all people, right, all human beings tend to prefer uh, ceteris paribus, uh, present goods to future goods of the same uh, kind, right? So if I um, if I can have an apple now or an apple in the future, uh, next week or so, then I would prefer to have the apple now uh, rather than next week. Right? So, um, but Bimbabek admitted that, and Bimbabek thought that, in fact, as a rule, right, um, uh, uh, people have the preference for present goods over future goods. Um, and he gave three famous reasons uh, for this. I won't go into this now, but you'll, you'll find it easily on, on the internet. Um, uh, but he also admitted that um, time preference was not always positive. That is, it's not necessarily the case that you prefer present goods to future goods, right? There can be circumstances under which you would prefer future goods to present goods. Um, and other economists who have developed that theory uh, along Bambarakian lines, thought the same thing. One example would be Irving Fisher, right, famous American economist of the first half of the 20th century. Now, in, in Mises, we find a different variant of the same theory. Mises says um, that the time preference uh, is manifest in the fact that whatever we do, we prefer to have the result sooner rather than later. 
right? So the, uh, the, the very fact that I'm, I'm talking now demonstrates that I want to get this done sooner rather than later. I, if I go to bed, I want to get rest sooner rather than later, right? So in that sense, of course, time preference is, uh, is universal, right? It's not possible that there be any exception. Um, the, the other question is whether um, time preference understood in that sense uh, would explain interest rates on the on the market and so and here i i don't think that that is the case and i've presented uh, the reasons for my uh, uh, criticism of the, of the time preference theory in a, a 2002 article that you can find on the internet the article has the title uh, a theory of interest the next question why aren't economic laws, empirical regularities? Um, well, actually, they, they might be, right? Uh, the, the trouble is that, that we cannot observe those empirical realities. And uh, the reason is that whatever we observe in society and on the market and so on is the consequence of a lot of different uh, causal causes that come into place simultaneously, right? So it's, uh, it's, a, it's always a complex phenomenon, right? That was Karl Menger's expression, right? All things uh, on the market, even an individual price is a complex phenomenon because it is the combined result of lots of different factors that come into play uh, in, in, in forming the price. Um, now in the, in, the, in the natural sciences, we, have the same situation, right? Whatever we observe in nature is typically the combined result of lots of different factors, right? And if we didn't have the possibility to conduct laboratory experiments, it would actually be quite difficult to uh, come, just come to the idea uh, of having, uh, that there might be any regularities or universal causal relations that, uh, uh, of any sort, right? I think uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, Russell he had uh, once uh, expressed this, this idea in one of his books. I don't remember the, the, uh, the title. And he said something like, well, um, actually, the, the, the reason why man has come to think that there are regularities, that there are laws, right, laws of nature, is due to our um, very peculiar situation uh, that we have, right? Because we can observe, uh, for example, the stars, the stars observe, uh, behave in a regular way. Uh, and so that was one of the initial motivations of thinking, right? That there might be irregularities. If we were much smaller, right? If we were a small, uh, so small that we were uh, moving on a molecular level and so on, and there would be so much chaos, according to uh, Russell, that we would never see any order at all, right? Any irregularities at all. And if we were much larger than we really are, we would have the, the same, 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 same difficulties. Um, well, so the uh, the reason why uh, we can describe empirical regularities is well, first of all, because we have astronomy, so there things have been dis uh, discovered. Uh, these regularities have been discovered the first time, and then especially because we have laboratory experiments. Right. In a laboratory experiment, what we do is to create 
conditions such as that we exclude the influence of all other factors except for the one that we want to study. And then we see if our uh, experiment is well construed, then we see the, the impact, so the operation of this one factor, we see the empirical regularity. Now that's not possible in, in economics, right? But I think that if we could construe laboratory experiments, and the economists are trying to do this right now, it's called experimental economics, but I think it's nonsense. Uh, and I won't go into this now. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work in, in the case of, of, uh, of human action. But if we could, okay, then we would also observe uh, these regularities empirically. As things are standing, so we cannot conduct laboratory experiments in, in uh, as far as human action is concerned and the, the social sciences more, more, more generally, well, we have to uh, conduct uh, mental experiments, right? That's an expression of the Austrian uh, philosopher, um, Ernst Mach. Uh, he was a philosopher of, uh, of physics and uh, uh, he didn't have much money <laughs> in the in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And so the Austrian physicists were poor, which distinguished them from the German ones. So the Germans had all the money and they could set up big laboratories and so on, conduct these experiments. And the Austrians didn't have any money. So, so they had to just think things through. Okay, so, so we need to conduct mental experiments, uh, Gedankenexperimente. And, uh, and uh, actually the Austrians were doing very well, right? So they, 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 on the theoretical level, they were not behind the Germans at all. And uh, in, in economics, probably uh, Gedanken experimente are the only things that we can do. And unfortunately, many economists refuse to do this as they, they just look desperately to find numbers to crunch and uh, pseudo experiments to conduct and so on in the hope that they would find any irregularities uh, coming close to some universal causal relationship, but you never get there this way. Right? So really mental experiments are the only way to go about this. What's the worst uh, consequence of money production? Uh, I have difficulties responding to this question because money production is actually fine. Why should there be any bad consequence resulting from this? I guess the re question refers to monetary interventionism, right? Because on the free market, it's, it's normal that, of course, people, I mean, you have something like money is a good and people, uh, by producing a good, people obtain uh, the source of revenues, right? So it's, it's normal that they would try to, uh, to produce that good. Um, and in a, in a free market, there would be a production of gold and a production of silver, right? there would be mining, and people would produce coins and so on. And that's not bad, that's good for those who are concerned. And it's also good for those who use uh, gold and silver for, uh, for, uh, for exchange, right? If they are the first ones to be able to exchange them, right? they gain, even though that gain might be at the expense of other people. But that's not fundamentally different from, let's say, if you're a specialist in the production of, uh, of clothes, right? You, you produce clothes uh, and uh, that's for you a source of revenue. And if you produce a lot of clothes, well, you gain uh, relatively to, to other market participants, right? That's, that's what, what's driving you. That's not bad per se. Um, what monetary interventionism is bad because it's unjust, 
right? So it's based on the violation of property rights, and it leads to various nefarious consequences. And probably the, the most nefarious consequence is the de-responsibilization of the market participants, right? Especially if we think of something like uh, the production of fiat money, right? You have a central bank that's producing um, immaterial uh, money uh, tokens, right? Uh, bank banknotes and uh, accounting money and, and so on, and is able to impose this on the on the market. Uh, then, of course, the the first users of these uh, money units, well, they also benefit at the expense of others, but they, but they benefit without um without genuine contribution right they, they've not provided a service to these others they are just benefiting from the fact that they are able to screw uh, the others by coercing them to use a type of money that we, nobody really wants to use right and so as a consequence they they uh we have all this uh, laxism in uh, the conduct of uh, uh, business, right? If, if you look at commercial banks, uh, how they, they run their business, it, it's in fact, it's very frivolous, right? Because they, they're, they're not, no longer responsible. They can rely on the assistance coming from the central banks and also from, from the government. And as a consequence, they're just chasing profits without taking any precautions on their own side to stay in business because the, 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 the central bank and the government are just taking all obstacles out of their way and helping them whenever they are in dire straits. Uh, now, now that's problematic, right? Because uh, not only because it creates a shabby character, but also because it, it wastes a lot of resources in the market. Now I see we have four, 45 minutes, and in fact, I, I need to close very soon. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll answer the last question. Okay, let me just see. Da, 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 da. Uh, uh, how do you respond to critics of anarcho-capitalism that argue corporations would fill the power vacuum left by the state? Uh, well, I, I would say that, yes, it's possible that uh, corporations could fill that, that power vacuum. It's true. But, I mean, uh, again, what the state has, the state has a monopoly, right? It, it, it's not subject to competition, right? Even if you have a corporation, uh, so it's very powerful, very big. And it, it, today, corporations, some corporations are very powerful, and very big, precisely because we have the state, right? We have an organization that keeps competition out of the way and, and, and uh, creates uh, excessively large business and excessively powerful businesses. So if you have a corporation that steps into play, but without the presence of a state, that corporation could certainly abuse its current power, right? But it couldn't build uh, uh, anymore, right? So if it abused its, uh, uh, its uh, current power, it would consume its capital. Uh, because uh, people would have the possibility to avoid dealing with the corporation. And the second uh, uh, answer that I would give is, well, I mean, again, what's the difference as compared to the current situation? Don't we have already now uh, corporations running our lives? We just think of media corporations and, uh, and we think of money and uh, um, the internet and uh, various other services, right? We have lots of big corporations that are as big as they are, among other things, not only, but among other things, because uh, they have the support of, of government. So they are 
to some extent making our lives more miserable because they have the government support. So what's what could get worse <laughs> than the, the, the current situation? Um, and the very last one, okay, what is the proper role of math and economics? Well, economics, uh, uh, we, we, uh, we don't, we need math at best of the, of the very elementary sort, right? Plus minus times divided by, uh, it's not more complicated than that. And the reason is that um, the, the, the quantities uh, that we are dealing with quantities of economic goods, they're not actually homogenous, right? Mathematics is built on, on the premise that all the quantities you're dealing with, uh, abstract quantities, they're homogenous, right? There's one, 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 so it can add up and makes three. Um, but uh, in economics, we have let's we have the uh, what is called the law of diminishing marginal utility, right? Which which tells us that uh, 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 quantity of three apples has a greater value than the quantity of two apples, but it's not three sec uh, three uh, seconds more right it's not 1.5 times more than two apples and the, the reason is that each additional apple uh, makes that uh, each unit in that larger stock has a, a lower value than each unit of the uh, the previously uh, smaller stock right so the the apples in the larger stock do not have the same economic significance than the apples in a smaller stock and we cannot just add them up, right? Uh, we cannot, cannot add up their economic significance. And that makes that uh, the application of mathematics as far as prices and value and so on is concerned is impossible in economics. So we better try to forget about this. I know that that's not what most mainstream economists do, but it's, it's an error and it's a waste of time. But since they like to play with numbers, I mean, there's no way of preventing them from doing this. And I let them do this, and this, uh, that's fine. And uh, uh, it, 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 it keeps uh, the way free for, for Austrians. We have a lot more to do because uh, all the other guys are wasting their time with questions that don't have answers. Well, uh, I hope it was somewhat useful, what, what I said. I'm not sure, but you'll tell me. And uh, uh, I wish you a pleasant evening and maybe we'll see each other again on another occasion. Bye-bye.